Welcome to the Sabbath day. You may not be aware, but remember it, but from sunset tonight, in 50 days, it will be the start of the Feast of Trumpets. And with that begins another round of the fall Holy Day festivals. Looking forward to that period of time, I guess most of us have all of our physical arrangements for the Feast of Tabernacles largely in hand. Uh, My wife and I will be visiting uh, some four countries, or five countries in fact, as a result of the feast travel, and so it takes some time to put those feast plans together. But they're largely all done at this point in time. And we could look forward to the Feast of Tabernacles. There are, of course, innumerable things to be done along the line to be uh, take care of the brethren. Uh, The feast site will be at in Kenya, and uh, the brethren we will visit there afterwards. But we can focus very much upon the physical preparations for the feast and forget some of the other preparations we need to be making for the Feast of Tabernacles. Ancient Israel provides us with a useful object lesson as we prepare for the Feast. We look forward to the Feast of Tabernacles, especially the physical, not the physical, the spiritual aspects of the Feast. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and uh, talked of the example of the Israelites to them. But before he introduced the aspect of the Israelites, or the example of the Israelites, he talked about how he had to keep his own body under subjection. And of course, as Mr. McNair mentioned in the sermon, in the announcements rather, we're in the middle of the Olympics of the present time. And we see all of the striving that is done to accomplish or win a gold medal, or set a new record. And the effort that goes into it is prodigious. People dedicate their lives to it. And having accomplished it, they have been so dedicated to the task in hand, they're good for very little else. And so often those athletes or those people who receive the crowns and so forth at the Olympic Games, go away from it having accomplished the apex of their particular field of endeavor. And I don't know what their life is all about. And Paul talked about how people like them, and like the Greeks of his day, strive for a physical crown. But he said, we are striving for an immortal crown. Of course, in those days, it wasn't a gold medallion that you could take down the road to a pawn shop and sell off. It was a laurel leaf wreath that went about your head. And for those of you who have ever had wreaths of flowers before today, you realize, of the plant matter, you realize they don't really last that long. And the Apostle Paul said, I myself, I have got to keep my body under subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself become a castaway. He realized it was a duty that he had to focus on in terms of his life. And so then, in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, he addresses the example of Israel. And in verse 5, if you turn to 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 5, Talking of Israel who came out of Egypt, he said in verse 5, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They died in the wilderness experience. They didn't accomplish the goal that they set out to accomplish in leaving Egypt. They became cadavers in the wilderness. And so Paul said in verse 6, he said, these things became our examples. These are things for us to learn from. 
to the extent of, to the intent that we should not lust after things, after evil things, as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 died or fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and was destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Then he reiterates the initial comment he made there in verse 6. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age have come. And in verse 12, he said, Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. So reiterating what he had mentioned at the end of chapter 9 and the way in which he had to keep his body under subjection, he says, we all have to watch it. We have to be alert. We have to be very guarded in terms of our life. Paul references here five sins that the children of Israel undertook or fell into that kept them from inheriting the promised land that led to their bodies becoming compost in the wilderness. That's what it really became. They became part of the soil of the the wilderness. They never accomplished their goal. They were, they indicated, these particular sins indicated that they were of the wrong spirit to enter and enjoy the promises of God. They disqualified themselves. It's rather interesting because all of these five sins are highlighted in one particular book. That is the book of Numbers. And they're highlighted in one particular section of the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers is an interesting book because it's built almost like a layer cake. It deals with two things. It deals with law relating to the children of Israel and the way in which they were conduct themselves that we are to learn from. And then it deals with their experiences in the wilderness, what we might call the narrative or the story of the children of Israel. And these are laid out throughout the books and they are put together in such a way that they form layers, you might say, throughout the book. And uh, we find that these occur in those layers, in one particular layer of the book of Numbers. We find that the aspect of lusting is recorded for us in chapter 11, starting in verse 1. And there are a number of references to the children of Israel's lust in chapter 11. The aspect of idolatry turns up in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. And, of course, that is linked with the aspect of immorality, which appears in that same chapter. The aspect of tempting that Paul references, we find in Numbers chapter 21. And then the aspect of complaining is found in Numbers chapter 11, Numbers chapter 14, and chapter 16. So these are particular These five sins form part of a layer of the narrative that runs through the book of Numbers starting in chapter, uh, the latter part of chapter 10 through the end of chapter 17 and then picking up again in chapter 20 through chapter 27. Now, excuse me, today we could look at these sins and we could examine these sins and so forth and how to avoid them. Or we could look at something else that's contained in terms of the book of Numbers. Because you see, everything that was recorded in the book of Numbers was not necessarily bad. There were some who did inherit the promised land. There were some who didn't get caught up in these problems. 
in these distractions, as Dr. Guineo mentions in the announcements, in the bulletin. There are some people who didn't get caught up in the distractions of this physical life and who, as a result of that failure to get distracted, ended up inheriting. And it's upon those people that I'd like to focus today. You might say the positive aspect. You see, in this particular section of Numbers, we're introduced to one of the people who I would consider is one of my favorite biblical characters. We know nothing of him. Well, I guess we can deduce a thing or two from him because he was one of the spies who was sent to spy out the promised land. Therefore, he had a pair of good pins for walking for 40 days. He was able to walk. He had a certain robustness to him and ability to walk. And he also had a good pair of eyes so that he was able to see. Else what's the use of sending a blind man as a spy? So we know a few physical details of a man. We can deduce a few things about him. But we don't know anything. How tall was he? How swarthy was he? What color were his eyes? We know nothing about him. We know his name. We know his family. That man was Caleb. A wonderful individual about whom we know so very little. And yet, we know an incredible amount. Because the Eternal made one statement about Caleb. What we know about Caleb is how the Eternal saw him. And on what basis he was able to inherit the land that had been promised to them. And you might say we'll come back to the Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul builds on this again. Numbers chapter 14 and verse 24. The spies came back from a promised land and they came back with a Sad story. Great place, but oh, we're never going to uh, inherit it. We find in the early verses of chapter 14 that Caleb and Joshua sought to still the people and tell them that the eternal's on our side. He will deliver us. He will give us the land. We don't need to be concerned about it. And so, towards the end of the chapter, the Eternal provides an evaluation of Caleb. In verse 24, he said, My servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, (coughs) I will bring him into the land where he went, and his descendants shall inherit it. Consider that for a moment. If you want an epitaph by which those who inhabit graveyards or wander through graveyards go and look and sort of make evaluations of people, you want to be remembered by something, something. What greater statement could be made about a person? This was my servant. He had a different spirit. He followed me fully. It's quite a statement to spend some time thinking about. In fact, the more I spend time thinking about it, the more I sort of learn from it. I stumbled upon this, you might say, a few years ago or many years ago, and really liked the guy, liked the fact that the Eternal said he was of a different spirit. And then you start and think, well, hold on. That's not all he says. He says... He is my servant. And how many people are classified as being the eternal student, a servant? You know, Caleb, as a servant of the eternal, joins a pantheon of stars. Who's included? Abraham, Moses, David, 
Job, Isaiah. What a collection. That's just from the Old Testament. And there are other people who were described as being the, the eternal servant for a particular purpose. Like Zerubbabel. But the ones upon whom the eternal focuses and calls people his servant are an incredible collection of individuals. And you, you could just leave it there. This guy's got it made. But the eternal didn't, did he? He said, this man is my servant. In other words, he didn't exist for his own ends. He existed for the eternal's ends. And of course, we could go into the New Testament and we could look at the way in which James and so forth describe themselves as being servants of Jesus Christ. Of course, that was a label they were taking to themselves in this case. And with Abraham, Moses, David, Job, etc., this was a label the eternal attached to them. And I don't doubt for one moment that James was a servant of Jesus Christ. I think that's something that we can really accept. But it was a label he chose himself, whereas this was something that the eternal placed on this individual. He didn't exist for his own ends. He existed for the eternal's purposes. And that was the whole raison d'etre of his life. He was, if we were to use another term from the New Testament, he was about his master's business, not feathering his own nest. So, quite a statement to make about a person. So the eternal could refer to him as being his servant. Wonderful statement to make. But he goes on, doesn't he? Because the eternal doesn't finish there with him. He says he was of a different spirit. There was something different about Caleb to those around him who had spied out the land and to those who were listening to the spies' report. Something set him apart because he saw the purposes of God from God's perspective rather than from human perspectives. Of course, the only person who was accepted beside Caleb was Joshua. We'll come to Joshua very shortly. They had a different spirit. Whose spirit is being addressed? What spirit is being addressed here when it says Caleb was of a different spirit? It may surprise you to realize the being of a different spirit is somewhat of a hallmark of the book of Numbers. Israel were preparing to enter the promised land. And yet the book of Numbers outlines the fact that so many failed to enter because of the sins they got into. And Moses failed to enter in. Aaron died before that occurred, owing to a lack of of a right spirit. I'd like you to turn back to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11, and let's pick it up in verse 23. Moses at times tried to do everything himself. can so often be a challenge for a leader. How do you find people who can help you accomplish the goal? Especially if they can't see things the way in which you see things. Moses clearly saw what the eternal wanted done. He had a challenge being able to communicate that to the leaders of Israel. And so the eternal said to Moses, verse 23 of Numbers chapter 11, the eternal said to Moses, has the Lord's arm or has the eternal's arm been shortened? Now you shall see whether it will happen or not. And so we find in verse 25 that the eternal came down in the cloud and spoke to Moses. 
And he took the spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the 70 elders. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. This was not a permanent condition with these people. So here was the situation. Moses needed some help. And the eternal said, it's a very easy thing for me to take some of the spirit I placed on you and put it on other people so they can start to see things from my perspective. My guess is that this is when Caleb became of a different spirit. It's rather interesting to read a little more into the chapter because Moses and these 70 elders were assembled before the tabernacle except that two of them didn't make it to the tabernacle in time. So there were only 68 men there with Moses. We find that two men had remained in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad, obviously of the family of Dad. And the Spirit rested upon them. Now, they were among those uh, listed. They were part of the 70 elders, and remember, bear in mind that the 70 elders have been up on Mount Sinai uh, with Moses and Aaron, uh, as recorded in the book of Exodus. Now, they, they were among those listed. They had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. So even although they wanted the tabernacle, because they were part of the 70, God placed part of that spirit that had been on Moses on them as well, detached as they were from the main group. And a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Help! We can't have this. And I can identify with Joshua because I probably would have reacted in exactly the same way. Joshua said, Moses, forbid them. We can't have this. Everything's getting out of control. Verse 28. Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. And Moses said to him, Are you zealous for my sake? Over all God's people prophesied, or were prophets. Over God's spirit was on everybody. We wouldn't have had the five sins listed in 1 Corinthians 10, would we? We wouldn't have had hundreds of thousands of people die in the wilderness. They would have been inheritors of a promised land right at the word go. Transformation. But unfortunately, not all people received the Spirit of God. And I think it's a telling experience, isn't it? Because here we are in chapter 11. We have no real time sequence as to the time spent between chapter 11 and chapter 14. But we get to chapter 14, and it's as though Caleb is the only one left. And we'll see Joshua as well. Caleb and Joshua are the only ones left who could be classified as being of a different spirit. Quite a telling thing, isn't it? Quite telling. In other words... The other 68 had no real appreciation whatsoever of what they'd been given. And it was a little thing. And they may have been highly competent in terms of the physical world. But they didn't see things from the eternal's point of view. They didn't see things from the eternal's perspective. They saw it from the human perspective. So my guess, this is when Caleb became a person of a different spirit. And for some reason, for God's purposes, Caleb valued that insight and perspective that he was able to have as a result of having that different spirit. And he, like Joshua, were able to come back and say, we can inherit. We can go up. The eternal will take care of it. 
So Paul's conclusion, comment of a conclusion of a section we read in 1 Corinthians 10 about he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall, has a great example for us. People who thought they had something because they didn't value it, it disappeared. And they died in the wilderness together with everyone else who was over 20 years of age, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua. 68 people who had received God's Holy Spirit or a portion of God's Holy Spirit died because they didn't value what they had been given. He who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. As Apostle Paul said in chapter 9, I keep my body under subjection, lest when I have preached to others I become myself a castaway. Like the other 68. Caleb is a person I would like to be like. Caleb is a person I'd like you to be like. Or Joshua, if you prefer Joshua. You know a little more about Joshua. Numbers chapter 27, we read a little more about Joshua. Numbers chapter 27 and verse 18, the Eternal said to Moses, take Joshua the son of Nun with you, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. So here was somebody else of a different spirit, Joshua. There is a great lesson for us. Do I have what is necessary to inherit the kingdom? Where is my focus? What motivates me? And so Joshua, a man in whom is the spirit. What spirit? The spirit of God. And lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar the priest and before the congregation, and inaugurate him in their sight. And you shall give some of your authority to him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. He shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire before the eternal for him by the judgment of Urim. So he was given the responsibility of inquiring of a priest, what was the eternal's will in a particular matter? At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, he and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. This man is going to be the leader. So Moses did as the eternal commanded him. He took Joshua and set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation. And he laid hands on him and inaugurated him just as the eternal commanded by the hand of of Moses. So both Joshua and Caleb were were of a different spirit to that of the Israelites. That's what keeps us from those sins that the children of Israel allowed themselves to be distracted by and failed to enter in. Moses also had God's Holy Spirit We read that in chapter 11. What about him then? Moses didn't enter. Of course, there's an important lesson in terms of Moses as well. Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. One of those problems that Israel faced in the wilderness. Where their lives were so focused upon the physical environment of which they were in, that they forgot and overlooked the power of the individual who led them. They just constantly forgot. They just looked at the physical circumstances and that was it. The way in which Caleb was able to see the people of the problems of the promised land was so different than the other, uh, the other spies. 
Why? Because he saw the way in which the eternal could take care of it. Just as the eternal had taken care of the Egyptians, even of the plagues, the opening of the, dead, the Red Sea, the feeding of the people, uh, the, the watering of the people at Mara, uh, the uh, feeding of the people with manna, with quail, and so forth. Everyone had been through those same experiences. But Caleb saw them as being the work of the eternal God of Israel, not just events that happened. He saw them as being the work of the eternal. He knew who provided them. And when it came down to something like water, he knew where the solution lay. Israel, because they didn't have that solution, had another solution. Complain. A very human problem, right? Things aren't going right, so we complain. Why have you done this to me? So in verse 2 we read, there was no water for the congregation. So they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. And they contended with Moses. You know, so this is pretty sharp. This is not a very nice, would you please ask the eternal to provide us with some water? No. This is, what do you think you're up to? If only we had died with our brethren who died before the eternal. What are we talking about? They're going back to Dathan and Abiram in chapter 16. Oh, we've been swallowed up by the earth back then. All of our problems would have been over. Sorry, folks. There is a resurrection. And you may wish that you'd done something else. Why have you brought us in the assembly of the eternal into this wilderness that we and our animals will die here. Why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? Place, uh, it is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. Not surprising, because all of those things need water. So if there's no water, there's going to be no figs or pomegranates or... Uh, grain or vines or anything else of that matter, or olive trees. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces. And the glory of the eternal appeared to them. So we find in verse 7, the eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eye, before their eyes, and it will yield its water. But you shall bring water for them out of a rock and give drink to the congregation of their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the eternal as commanded him, as he commanded him. Verse 10, Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? You want another miracle? Now that's not what the Eternal told him to do, was it? Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregations and their animals drank. Then the Eternal spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I'm giving them. This was a water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the eternal, and he was hallowed among them. Okay, so Moses got caught up in the contention. He became contentious. Rather than seeing this as an opportunity to elevate the eternal, it became an opportunity to fight back and get involved in the contention. 
And the Eternal said, Moses, my friend, you're not going to lead these people into the promised land because you failed to hallow my name. You see, God's Holy Spirit should always see us hallowing God's name. It's not about ourselves. It's about the eternal. It's about his greatness and his power. So Caleb and Joshua both used that spirit in a particular way. And that is why they were able to enter the promised land. And that brings us, you might say, to the third point the eternal has to say about Caleb. He followed me fully. Not just half-heartedly. He followed me fully. We'll find in another uh, scripture in Numbers chapter 32 that these two men followed the eternal wholly particular way. You might say that Psalm 1, blessed and happy is a man who walks not. Psalm 1 characterizes the life and behavior of Caleb. Someone following the eternal fully or wholly. And obviously characterizes Joshua as well. So we have this third comment that is made of Caleb. He followed fully or wholly. As a result, he and Joshua were going to enter the promised land and inherit the kingdom. When Paul said that most died in the wilderness, I think he was having an English understatement. Everyone over the age of 20, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, died in the wilderness. Only Caleb with Joshua were to enter the promised land of all the men over 20 years of age. Incredible event. And they had to wander for 40 years for all of that to happen. Because some of them were pretty robust individuals. The eternal had to wear them down a little. Well, I guess he could have sent some plague upon them, but he didn't want to do that. He wanted these people to learn a lesson. A lesson from which we could benefit and we could learn. Numbers 32, verses 11 and 12, we find that this aspect of Caleb's qualities and that of Joshua are reiterated. Numbers 32, verse 11, the Eternal said, Surely none of a man who came out of Egypt from twenty years old and above shall see the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me, except Caleb, the son of Jephthunah, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have fully or they have wholly followed the eternal. You have to ask yourself, what happened to the other 68? They certainly did not wholly follow the eternal. It was a take it or leave it situation for them. So this verse, the verse we read in, in Numbers 14, verse 24, as for my servant Caleb, because he is of a different spirit and has followed me fully, he shall inherit. That one verse says so much about what the Father and Jesus Christ are looking for in terms of my life and our lives collectively and individually. What's he looking for in terms of us to be able to inherit the kingdom? in our feast preparation, 
in the 50 days that remain from sunset tonight until trumpets. Give some thought to what it is that you need to prepare spiritually for the feast about. You see, it's so easy to think of the feast in terms of the physical things. Okay, you've got children, you've got little children, you've got to think about these things. What are we going to do at the feast? What activities are we going to be involved in? What restaurants are we going to uh, eat in? My wife and I are going to have dinner with a friend in London before the feast. And if it's true to form, we will be taken into a restaurant in which the walls are decorated with probably 20 million pounds worth of art. Most of us don't have opportunities to be in such storied environments. But you see, that's not really what the feast is about. What we will talk about in that environment is probably infinitely more important than the environment itself. This particular restaurant recently undertook an eight million pound renovation of a building and at the same time they bought eight million pounds worth of art to go in the building, to go with what was there already. And this is, covers five floors. It's easy to get distracted by what's around you, right? We shouldn't. We can get very caught up in what we do physically at the feast. We won't have a meal like that at the feast. Very different in Kenya. There's no menu. And the meals tend to be the same day after day. Unless we go out and find something for the cook to cook differently. So we don't get much time to focus on physical food at the feast. But for some, it can be a real opportunity. And it's great. It's wonderful that you can enjoy great food at the feast. The problem is that the physical challenge, physical opportunities we have at the feast become the feast itself. We lose sight of what it's all about. The kingdom of God. Interesting to look at the statement about Caleb and look at what Jesus Christ had to say. The way in which these qualities that Caleb expressed have to be found in our lives as well. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28. Of course, uh, context, people concerned about their position in the kingdom. Jesus said to the disciples, he said, Assuredly, I say to you that in the, in the regeneration, in the kingdom of God, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me shall also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Hmm. So with the disciples, it was a matter of following, following fully or wholly. Of course, one of those disciples missed out, didn't he? Because 30 pieces of silver was more important than a role in the kingdom of God. Sad commentary. Now, if you look in the Gospels, you'll find many people followed Christ but often for very limited ends. They wanted to be healed, and I don't blame them for wanting to be healed. Jesus Christ had the power to heal them. 
which was stupendous for their lives. And then I have to wonder how many of those people were part of the early church when Acts chapter 2 comes around and Acts chapter 3. Were they part of the ones who responded and then were baptized and received of God's Holy Spirit? Some followed Christ because they wanted a free meal. Fish and bread. That's what they wanted. Was that the case in terms of the disciples? Let's turn back a couple of pages, a couple of chapters of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus set out the parameters that is involved in following. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24. Now, of course, bear in mind, in the early part of a chapter, Jesus Christ had asked, who do men say that I am? And he had had to correct Peter because he sought the things of man rather than things of God. So it's a great context in terms of following. In verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself. Okay, following means denial of self. And take up his cross and follow me. There is self-denial. There is not seeking the distractions of this world. Not seeking the feel-good experiences that humanity wants to indulge itself in. But rather seeking what our Father wishes. What is his purpose? What is his goal? Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's interesting. We look at things one way and the eternal says, you got it upside down. You try and save your life, you lose it. You be prepared to lose your life for my sake, and you'll find it. What profit to a man is it if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What's your value system? What's important to you? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, Paul gave us an example of five different things that the Israelites were prepared to sell out their inheritance for. Right? That's a lesson. Human beings can easily get distracted and lose sight of what it's about. The beauty of Caleb was he didn't. He kept the focus. John chapter 12, verse 26. John chapter 12, immediately before the Passover, Jesus Christ was in Jerusalem at that time. In verse 26 it said, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. If you're going to be a servant of mine, follow me. Okay, so we get the element of being a servant, and following. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my father will honor. And how does the father honor in the first instance? By giving a different spirit so that we see things from his perspective. Now, I made the point at the beginning that you should remember that 50 days from sunset tonight is the Feast of Trumpets. And I said that for a reason. Because today is the ninth of the month Av, which is when the destruction of a temple, Solomon's temple by the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, and then in 70 CE, Herod's temple by the Roman forces of Vespasian 
were destroyed. It is a day of calamity in the Jewish community. Everything bad that has happened to the Jews is somehow associated with the 10th of Av, tomorrow. For some reason, medieval times, the Jews decided to keep it on the 9th of Av. And so the 9th of Av is a fast day that remembers the destruction of the temple and all of the things that have gone wrong ever since. Now, of course, the 9th of Av is today. And the 9th of Av is supposed to be a fast day. But the Jews don't fast on the Sabbath. So tomorrow will be the fast day. So eat up, drink up, enjoy life, so to speak. They fast and they gather in the synagogue. And, of course, they read or they hear the Book of Lamentations read in the synagogue. But it's rather interesting because besides reading or listening to the book of Lamentations, observant Jews do some other strange things. I received a uh, newsletter from one of the Jewish organizations, and the editor, uh, the editor of the newsletter had a cover uh, editorial, you might say, about today or about this particular fast day. And he recorded in his uh, newsletter, he said, Tisha B'Av, that is the ninth of Av, is a fast day. It commemorates the destruction of Jerusalem and our entry into exile. Exile of a body, exile of a soul, mainly of a soul. Good point. There's some understanding here. There's a detachment from God. They're not seeing things from God's perspective. Not that they did beforehand. But that's his comment. He said, at first I found Tisha B'Av an enchanting living theater of the absurd. People sitting on overturned chairs. We want to ask... Mr. Chesnar to sit on an overturned chair down here. But that's what they do in the synagogues or at home. They sit on, they sit at a table to eat before the fast on little children's chairs so that you're sitting way down below the top of the table, so to speak. The curtain is removed from around the ark. The lights half on, half off. Everything deliberately out of order. Just to remember that this is not how things are supposed to be. He said, but by now I've had enough. I don't need a day designed to make me depressed. I don't need a day to remind me that things are not the way they are supposed to be. I need a day in which to make things the way they should be. A day not for mourning, but a day for fixing. A day to take this day away. He continues, well, maybe that's what Tisha B'Av is meant to be. It's meant to motivate us to fix up the situation and get out of this rut. After all, we were the ones who made this mess. We should be able to get out of it. Amen. We made this mess, but we will need God's Holy Spirit to help us get out of it. He said at the same time, I've had enough fasting and mourning, exile and darkness. I've had enough of a world that is not the way it is supposed to be. I don't like Tisha B'Av. He said, dear God, this year, please take it away. Interesting comment. Because it is so easy for us to see this world the way it is. And not see it as being the world that is upside down. 
Now I can't look out and see you sitting on chairs upside down, upside down chairs. Uh, turn this room upside down and you all hanging off those chairs would be impossible for my mind to imagine. But do we see this world for what it really is? Do we really see this world as being upside down? That's the question we have to take with us to the Feast of Tabernacles. Do I really see this world being upside down enough? And how would I like the Eternal to use me to turn it right way up? I appreciate most of our teens are away at summer camp at the present time. But maybe a great challenge for the young people of the Feast of Tabernacles is to think, what would I like to be involved in in the kingdom of God that can turn this world the right way up? What skills do I have that the eternal could use to change the way this world is? What would I like to be involved in? How would I like to be used by my Heavenly Father to change this world? We go to the feast. We start preparing for the feast with those concepts in mind. We don't get caught up by the distractions as Israel did. We avoid the distractions because we see things as the eternal season. Dr. Meredith has been talking about Satan's alternative universe. Do we really see it as being Satan's alternative universe? That's what, that's the way in which the eternal sees it. That's the way in which Jesus Christ and the whole angelic being that is supporting the God family would see it. Are we convinced of that? So, uh, Zechariah, of course, was inspired to tell us that Tisha B'Av, this fast that is supposed to be today, but is going to be kept tomorrow, is eventually going to be turned into a festival of joy. So rather than fasting, we'll make up for it by eating. But when's that going to be? That's in the kingdom of God. When the world has been turned right side up, It represents a time of restoration of the way the God family sought for it to be from the beginning. So this, this caution of seeing our environment through the eyes of this world, as opposed to having a different spirit like Caleb, is something we are to be constantly alert for. Paul, writing in the book of Hebrews, talks about the way in which Israel got themselves caught up in that, and they failed to enter the promised land. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1 gives us that warning. He said, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to come short of it. Like Paul said out, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For indeed, the gospel was preached to them as well as to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Rather interestingly, the first time I ever heard Dr. Meredith give a sermon was in Jerusalem in June 1972. Now, to put that in perspective, we didn't have cassette tapes in those days to send around to churches. So we never had audio sermons. We never had video sermons. We didn't have DVDs. DVDs hadn't been thought of, let alone CDs at that point in time. We still used reel-to-reel recorders. And it was a couple of years after that, at Levitt Bread, 1974, when the first Play in all churches tape was sent out. So I was in Jerusalem in June of 1972. And Dr. Meredith and David John Hill came through town. 
And uh, David John Hill gave the sermonette, and Dr. Meredith gave the sermon. Have a guess what the subject was. Faith. You might say, all I've ever heard the man talk about is the necessity for faith. Pretty essential. Because if you don't have faith, you won't get into the kingdom of God. You might say, Caleb. We can add to what it says about Caleb. Caleb clearly was a man of faith. Joshua was a man of faith. And as a result of that faith, they were able to enter the promised land and inherit the land. Jesus Christ, John chapter 6, talks about how the flesh profits nothing. You can note that in, in Isaiah, rather John 6, verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. Caleb had it made because he had a different spirit. He wasn't going to die in the wilderness. Oh yes, he eventually did die of a great age. But he waits for a resurrection, doesn't he? In a remarkable way. So Jesus Christ said, it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. As we prepare for the feast, is it the spiritual aspects? What is going to be done as far as the feast is concerned that is uppermost in our mind? Or is it all of the physical things that we might do at the Feast of Tabernacles? Paul puts these three qualities that the eternal saw in Caleb together for us as well. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5, five through 8. Excuse me, Ephesians chapter 6. I said chapter 5. Chapter 6, verse 5 through 8. He said, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service, as men pleases, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. You and me, we're called to be bond servants of Jesus Christ. Just as Caleb was a bond service of Jesus Christ. He carries on, verse 7, with goodwill doing service as to the eternal or to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. So he talks about being a bondservant of Jesus Christ and doing the will of God. And what's the context of this? He immediately goes on in the next chap- verses after this to talk about the spiritual aspect, about the need for God's spirit in our life because we fight a spiritual battle. And the attempt to distract us from the ways of God is because of another spirit, not the spirit of God. So the three elements of the eternal included in his evaluation of Caleb, Paul uses in terms of us as well. We have to have that same evaluation set of us. But I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, and I'm a different spirit, and that I've followed him fully. I've sought his will fully in my life. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1. He said, if you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Hmm. There's a new perspective to be had. God's perspective, the Father's perspective. Jesus Christ sitting at his right hand. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Oh, yes, we have to be concerned about our physical well-being if we're going to continue and undertake a life that can continue to be a servant of Jesus Christ. You know, we're not to become hermits and disappear into some cave in uh, 
Egypt become uh, remote from humanity, we have a responsibility to teach. So we do have to take care of us. But what motivates it? It is the things above, not on things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You can read the rest of that chapter, especially verses 17 through 24, where Paul once again reiterates what we've read from Ephesians chapter 6. So perhaps in the 50 days before trumpets, you and I could spend some time considering what spirit we're of. Am I really a servant of Jesus Christ? Do I seek his will? Do those three qualities sum up my life? As I prepare for the feast, what's motivating my preparation for the feast? Seeing the Father's will done upon the earth for the benefit of humanity or just my self-enjoyment? Those are questions we have to ask ourselves. Caleb, I present to you as an example that each and every one of us should emulate so that we too can inherit the kingdom.